90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? <laughs> Pretty good, John. Um, been enjoying this week since pumpkin spice lattes and salted caramel mochas came out. How about you? Yeah, I, I actually have some salted caramel coffee in front of me right now. <laughs> of course. And I mean, it's still, you know, 95 degrees in Oklahoma, but we can pretend anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, coffee is really more about the caffeine, less about keeping warm or relation to the temperature outside for me. Uh, it's so true. I think it's only true for real coffee people because you get those looks when you're like, yeah, I want it hot. What do you mean? Don't put ice in my coffee. <laughs> I, I, yes, I had that exact discussion with someone else today. <laughs> but <laughs> we digress, as always. We digress. So, what have you been up to this week? Um, I've actually been doing today, in fact, a really interesting thing. Um, so, something that our university does is they've put together these faculty learning communities. And what those are are a certain faculty member will say, hey, let's talk about X. And so a whole bunch of faculty sign up, and it's kind of like a book club, essentially, and you meet for, you know, six to eight weeks. And I've done topics on, like, designing um, designing STEM sort of, like, rubrics in the classroom and some really interesting teaching topics. But I'm on one about digital communities and their place in teaching, and it's really interesting so far. So are you going to talk about communities like, you know, wikis, blogs, social media, that kind of thing, or a different digital community? Well, what's nice about these faculty learning communities in general is that we can sort of steer things how we want them to go. So what we mostly talked about today, so it's only an hour, like I said, once a week for eight weeks or so. Um, and what we talked about today is that students so often are talked about as digital natives. You know, these students come up and all the faculty say, well, they're digital natives, they should know how to do things, but they really don't know how to do much on a computer besides upload selfies or Snapchat or stuff like that. <laughs> and how right. like faculty don't even get that because they just assume, well, they have all this knowledge about computers, so they should be able to immediately get on Web of Science and understand how to negotiate it. You know, They should be able to write a blog post, but it's stuff they don't actually know. So I think we're going to start to talk about those things and how you can teach them good digital citizenship and how important it is for like jobs going forward that you don't post all your drunken selfies on Facebook. <laughs> right. No, I think that's, that sounds really interesting. I'm curious to hear what happens as you go through these oh, yeah. I can't, eight weeks. I can't wait. I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about about it. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> so you've had a busy week. I heard you cheating on me with another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's been a very busy week, and actually got to go on the Orbital Mechanics podcast, our uh, our good friends, uh, Ben and Dave over there, and I got to talk about SMAP. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> no, actually, this is so, something that you know a lot about, right? Because we're radar people. Well, yeah, so this is the Soil Moisture Active Passive SMAP, or SMAP, our whoever you want to believe on how you say it. Uh, it's this really expensive satellite, uh, about a billion dollars. Oh, that's no big and, deal. Yeah, it's been in orbit for less than a year, 
and it was using both active and passive radars, as the name implies, to sense how much moisture was in the soil and whether it was frozen or thawed and make that map over the entire globe once every three days. Which is awesome because then you have a really high-resolution map of, say, melting ice in the poles, right? Right, or drought and evolution of drought. Right. Uh, it's going to be a really big deal for agriculture as well. Man, that's... But unfortunately, uh, the active part of SMAP has failed. Oh. <laughs> Did it get yeah. any data at all? or? There's a little bit of data with the system running at full capacity, but then the low-voltage power supply to the radar amplifier that actually pumps out the power to get all the way down through the soil and back up to the, the spacecraft... Uh, failed, and it's one of the systems that's non-redundant. Mm, of course. It's always the non-redundant systems that seem to fail, right? Yeah, and this I mean, sounds like the most innocent system that there was, really. A low-voltage power supply should be a pretty straightforward thing. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, in space, nothing is straightforward. Uh, yeah, exactly. So is SMAP, because that's what I'll call it, <laughs> is it still <laughs> getting, is the passive part still working? Are we still getting data from it? That's a lot of money to have fail. E- yeah, the passive part's working perfectly, so we're still getting maps from that. Uh, and that part actually has better absolute value resolution. Right. But the spatial resolution is much more coarse right. than the active part was. So the goal is to combine those. Uh, if you want to learn more about it, you should definitely check out the Orbital Mechanics. It'll be linked in the show notes. It was a really fun episode. They had lots of guests on and talked about pork chop plots. I'll tease that. Uh, <laughs> it's a fun plot when you're doing Orbital Mechanics. But no, so they wanted, they talked about this spacecraft failure, but they wanted to know how it actually worked. So I got to go on and talk about dielectric coefficients wow. and scatterometry, because as you said, as meteorologists and then uh, myself as a geophysicist, uh, we get a decent amount of training in radar. Uh, yes, exactly. And that's the thing that I love about sort of all these integrated scientists, sciences that we're both interested in is it's the same physics. You're just talking about different media. And exactly, it's really cool. Yeah, and actually, you know, one of the hosts uh, of that podcast just today, right before we recorded, and I swear we didn't pay him to do this, <laughs> tweeted a picture of a landform and said, hey, what causes this? <laughs> and that led so perfectly into our show that we had planned to record this week. Uh, <laughs> it was unreal. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> Yes, thanks, Ben. (laughs) Well, as a matter of fact, we're going to tell you all about why you should know what that landform is and how that further affects how good a human being you are, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get me wrong. The fact that you know or do not know how a butte forms (laughs) probably doesn't have a huge impact on your life, but learning geology could have a huge impact on your life. And I know when I first pitched this show, Shannon said, well, our listeners are most of them geologists, and I'm not so sure about that because we get a lot of emails from people that aren't geologists uh, that are just interested in the planet or in natural processes that listen to the show. Yes, that that is true. Um, so I should have said already interest, interested in geology. Um, so this is still going to be, you know, you're still going to get something out of this. It's basically why you should be interested even more in geology, because it's not just about seeing a rock and saying that rock is an igneous rock. It's about 
what all the rest of that means and like the spatial learning and reasoning that you get from geology in general. But this was all lined out. I don't know if this is where you got the idea, John, in a Slate article, right? So yeah, there's this Slate article by Julia Turner called Your World Rocked. A good introduction to geology course is actually a course in time. And this is about why she thought you should take geology as your elective. And I was reading this article and I said, you know, I think there's a show in here. Right, exactly. And I mean, I teach intro geology for science majors. And so I definitely have to make this point all the time because while it's for science majors, I only actually have three geologists generally, three to five geologists in my class, and the rest are engineers. So I need to make a good point besides you need to know these words, but why geology is good for you in other ways. So I thought this was actually really cool. I'm clearly not the only one that thinks about that sort of thing. And she makes a lot of good points about what you can get from a geology class. Yeah. And, you know, before we started recording the show, uh, in fact, I think it was one of the first things you said when we started talking was that we were going to argue about this. And I said, well, let me put my headphones on so I can wildly gesticulate uh, <laughs> I'm always, while we do this. I'm always wildly gesticulating while we're recording, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I said that I think geology a lot of times gets tattered or viewed as kind of a, a lesser science you know people are going to take rocks for jocks it's the easy elective to get their <laughs> science lab uh, i hate to blame um i hate to blame the big bang theory for this but we're not getting a good rap from them that's for sure yeah it is in uh in our google doc for this show where <laughs> sheldon says geology is the kardashians of science yes that's been making its way around uh around my office as well <laughs> lately. Um, but I think the lack of, and certainly you can be quantitative in geology, but a lot of geology isn't quantitative. And there's a lot of, it's just like we say in the show, it's not an exact science. And so we can sort of be seen as a little fluffy, I think. And it's not an exact science, but it's not a special science either. Yes. <laughs> We're still science. We follow the exact same rules as all other branches of science. Exactly. We make observations, we test hypotheses, and we learn from that and we iterate because nothing is really an exact science, unfortunately. Right. And there's some great Lord Kelvin quotes. I don't have them in front of me right now about how, you know, you don't really truly understand a science until you can quantify it, essentially. So unless you can put a number on it, it doesn't mean anything. And a lot of sedimentologists sort of go by this axiom is that you've got to have numbers on things to be able to say you truly understand it but you know that's not necessarily true because the observational part teaches you critical thinking which is something that not a lot of people have anymore and I hear that all the time from my friends that are recruiters for big companies that people just don't think <laughs> yeah and I think a lot of the things that we'll talk about today are skills that could be better developed by taking geology classes. But the broadest brushstroke that I could paint with this, uh, and I don't remember where I heard somebody use this concept once, but it's a pretty common concept of lenses and being able to swap in different lenses to view the same thing through. So you can swap in, uh, we can swap in our meteorologist lens or our geologist lens or our physicist lens and look at the exact same problem from different angles no matter what you do, even if you're in business, maybe it would help if you could make some kind of parallel to something in the sciences. 
or in the arts. That happens a lot. Right, exactly. Um, so often we sort of disconnect all these things. The Western science way of thinking is that we compartmentalize these sciences and that they have hard edges and that there's no overlap. And that's just an awful thing to say. So hopefully by the time you know we're done with this, we've sort of convinced you that you know geology has a lot of overlap with other sciences and even, like you said, the arts. And so an understanding of it, even at the fundamental level, is going to do you a world of good. That was a little geology pun right there. but. <laughs> <laughs> so, Shannon, why exactly did you get into geoscience? You know, we've we've known each other for a very long time, mm-hmm, and I don't actually know that we ever discussed this question. I know. I, I don't think we have either. Um, so my dad was sort of a backyard scientist, I guess you could say. Um, you know, he never worked in the sciences himself, but he was always really interested in it. And so he would always, you know, we'd always be reading science books. We went camping a lot when I was a kid. And so we would have, you know, those Audubon like tree books and the Audubon rock books. (laughs) And he would just constantly be pushing me to like observe the things around me and then to go ahead and go forward with that. And so I had like weather charts and rock collections and all this cute little nerdy science stuff (laughs) (laughs) when I was little. And actually, I really loved volcanoes. That was one of the things, you know, we went camping in New Mexico a lot, and there's a lot of fairly young lava out there. And then there's a little Capulin volcano, a little cinder cone, and he used to take me there. And so that's sort of where my love of earth science has happened. I will say, (laughs) growing up in Oklahoma, I was scared to death of tornadoes. (laughs) (laughs) deathly afraid and I remember my first day in meteorology class and all the kids were like I've loved weather since I was little my mom said I used to get so excited nope I was in the closet with my teddy bear and my rosary (laughs) hoping I wasn't going to get blown away (laughs) but Mm -hmm. that's also what drove me into meteorology um I already had this you know big love of geology and geography and so I wanted to learn more about meteorology so I wouldn't be so scared of it. And then I realized it's all the same physics. And so I did both. Yep. What about you? Oh, well, you know, I think everybody thought I was going to be an engineer yep. for the longest time. <laughs> I, and... <laughs> I still think you secretly are, but that's okay. <laughs> I'll say, I, I play one at night sometimes. <laughs> uh, but I don't know. I, I've always liked observing things and trying to learn about them. I've always been very curious, and I was very lucky. My parents encouraged that a lot. My dad actually has a geology degree, uh, though I would say that didn't have a ton to do because he didn't push geology on me. <laughs> right. Uh, but there was some some background there of saying, oh, you know, well, this is this mineral uh, when I was a kid. But really, I've always been interested in natural sciences, and I've always been interested in I want to measure things that we can't directly observe. That was always fascinating to me. Using instrumentation mm. like radar, I like being able to look at things that I can't see, air currents or things that are under the ground. Uh, that's why I liked caves and tornadoes and gotcha. <laughs> all of okay. these things that I couldn't see. And as it turns out, uh, I started doing meteorology. The research climate at that time wasn't really primed for what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was interested in both meteorology and geology, so I decided to do a double major and then took a little bit of a bent uh, with <laughs> the extra physics and math that I already had from meteorology and went ahead and went into geophysics. And I tell you, it's a, a great a great place for an instrumentation nerd. I like to tease you that you 
can't hack it in geology, so you took the easy route and went into geophysics. But I think that's only a joke that <laughs> since we have meteorology degrees, we think is funny. Um, yeah. It's, it's really interesting to me because I grew up in northeast Oklahoma, and you grew up in northwest Arkansas, and that's not very far apart, like, climatologically or physically. And so it's interesting that we both, you know, we saw the same rocks, all those limestones that are up there. You know, it's all the same mm -hmm. tornadoes, and it's cool that we sort of took the same paths without even, you know. It's a neat, it's a neat what, thing, and it, we'll talk a little bit later in the show about how place is a big deal in the geosciences. Oh, absolutely. But the first thing that really strikes you about geoscience in general, it could be geology, it could be meteorology, it could be even engineering, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is... Thinking in three or four dimensions. A, yes. And this was the very first thing that I put when we were putting down the, the notes together for this show is because I remember in meteorology, because I worked at the National Severe Storms Laboratory, and so we did a lot of um, software development on radar, and one of the things that they would do would be to take cross-sections of storms. And I remember them, you know, laboriously explaining to me what a cross-section was and I already had all this geology and I was like yeah this is really easy it's <laughs> this and they were all surprised and they said that you know this 3d part of it is super hard I'm like well you have to in geology it's the first thing you have to do and we even it's evident in all of our textbooks too because block diagrams are a big deal for geologists you can't look at a rock in 2d even in a drawing you have to see it in three dimensions to understand it. So it's the first thing oh, yeah. you do. Well, and that's really important because generally as a geologist, when you're in the field or when you're looking at aerial photographs, you get 2D. Right. And you have to figure out what happened. Mm -hmm. So you have to learn how to think, you know, okay, well, it got folded and then it tilted and there was some erosion on top. What would that look like now? Exactly. And it's the 4D part. Just like you say, it's even harder because what would it look like now? So, so often, and because I'm a sedimentologist, this is what I would look at, you know, flow direction. Is it wind or water? Which direction was, was that fluid moving? And that affects what that two-dimensional picture that you're looking at says, too. And so you have to have those things sort of instantly in your mind to take in the environment that you're trying to study. Yeah, and the environment, I mean, we just had, we had a coastal geomorphologist give a colloquium talk here this week, uh, a couple days ago, and showed some satellite imagery uh, over a few decades of this little delta and spit, and said, okay, well, what direction is the water flowing here? And everybody agreed <laughs> it was flowing, let's say, from left to right on the page. Okay. And then we step forward a few decades, the river changes channels, and suddenly it's using the same channel uh, further upstream but in a reverse direction. <laughs> and so everything got turned on its head. Uh, <laughs> That's very interesting awesome. how these systems can evolve in 4D. Right, and it's all captured vertically in the rock record. And so it's a lot of spatial thinking and reasoning that you have to go through to put that together. It's a lot to keep in your head all at once. And you can't... I don't think you can learn it any better than <laughs> in geology, really, because the time component is there, too. I mean, meteorology is the same way, but you're looking at the time component as it's happening versus trying to 
detective out the time component like you would in geology. Right. In meteorology, you can repeat the experiment of a severe storm a decent number of times in one lifetime, right. uh, whereas you don't get to repeat the experiment of Earth. Yes. Yes. Too often. Exactly. I mean, we're getting some crazy weather now, and with our Godzilla El Nino, <laughs> we are seeing quite a bit of extreme stuff that maybe, you know, people haven't gotten to see in the past, so it's a good time to be alive, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, and thinking about, you know, this 340 cents, uh, Nikola Tesla, who's every nerd's favorite undersung <laughs> so true. hero, uh, there was a quote from him where he said something to the effect of, well, I, I design a machine in my mind to do something, and I set it running, and then I come back in a few weeks and check for where. <laughs> and that was his design process of, of mulling on these ideas and thinking actually in four dimensions. Uh, <laughs> I'd never heard that. That's good. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the tools for looking at things, whether you're looking at, you know, satellite photos or digital elevation maps or 3D seismic surveys, the tools for looking at them are still not that great because we look at 2D screens, even with 3D glasses. It's just not there yet. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, even, just like you said, even with 3D screens, it doesn't really... Because we have um, we have three D capability with our scanning electron microscope, and it does make a little bit of a difference, but it's not the same as actually seeing it. Yeah, well, and I just got a three D mouse. I don't even know what that uh, is. <laughs> <laughs> and well, it's it's this little control wheel thing that uh, you can move forward or backwards, side to side, up or down, and twist it. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, their training is a teapot on the screen. And you basically act like you're holding the teapot in your hand, except you're holding this mouse that's sitting on your desk, and you can manipulate it. And it's a really interesting way to fly through data uh, Mm. and manipulate these complex data volumes. Weird. But it's still not perfect. But it is helping. I'm having a lot of fun playing with it. Uh, That sounds, I was going to say, my mouse is in 3D. I can feel it, you know. In all three dimensions, well, but I gotcha. <laughs> and it's meant to be used in conjunction with a normal mouse. You're moving through your data with one hand and editing or analyzing with the other. So you have a 3D mouse in your left hand and a normal mouse in your right hand. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. How are you going to push up your glasses when they fall down? <laughs> <laughs> Zing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> So Well, what else do you have for us? Why else should we study geology or geoscience? Um, I have a big deal, and I find that I really think about this a lot when I teach my native science class because a lot of the students in there, and I know we've talked about this before, are afraid of science, right? And they come with all these preconceived beliefs about things. And this is even true in my intro class for, for science majors. There's all these preconceived beliefs. And I think what's important in geology is in any science is that as you teach it as you learn more about the earth stuff that you didn't know maybe it makes you start to question your preconceived notions about processes you know people may think they know how you get oil to the surface i mean certainly a lot of politicians think they know how that works and then (laughs) you sit down in class and you talk about you know geothermal gradients and pressure gradients and tectonic regimes and not even mentioning, you know, 
sort of geochemical processes that occur in the oil that can affect how you extract it. And it makes people realize, hey, maybe I didn't know that much. Maybe I should have a more open mind about things. And everyone lives on Earth. We all sit here and observe it, but do we really know that much about it? And so taking a class in it, I think maybe sort of helps to broaden your horizons. It makes you realize how much you don't know and maybe let go of some of these things that you think are true, but they're not. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's always a good idea to know something about your surroundings. You know, if you move to a new city, you always want to know a few things about the city, where you should go, where you should avoid, that kind of thing, or maybe the landscape around you. But you would think people would want to know more about the planet they live on. And when they find out how complicated and really beautiful it is, a lot of times they do. Yes, yes, that's absolutely true. Um, so I put on there something that's just like that, you know, the resources. That's super easy, right? We get our resources from the earth. But, you know, everybody's walking around. They love their iPhones, their smart whatevers, and they're always on them. But I don't think anyone actually stops to think about how connected to the earth those electronics are. I mean, you can speak about this more than I can, but... They're well, yeah, I mean, anything that's a vaguely heavy element is because it's star stuff. It's exploded star stuff. Right, like as over Carl and Sagan over. would say. So, yeah, these are really long-term, incredible cosmic processes that come together to make the elements that eventually would become elements in Earth that would then be dug up and turned into things to turn electron gates on and off. So you can watch a cat video. <laughs> You just got to get that cat video dig in there, don't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we actually talk about that exact thing. It's the first lecture that I give in intro geology is about, you know, how do you get the elements, not just from the Big Bang, but the nucleosynthesis and further supernova over and over again. And then I may be guilty of showing that picture of the cat on the keyboard in space as well. But, <laughs> <laughs> but exactly. So, like, you get caught up, you know, on instagram all the time looking at pictures of the earth around you well just think of how connected you know the the lithium in your batteries in your phone are to the earth around you you know and every little piece is connected that way and it's worth learning about right i mean every time we drive our car obviously oil but water too and so just gleaning like you said earlier that broad brush about the earth, I think makes you a better sort of citizen of the earth. Well, yeah, and a lot of people don't even realize uh, what Ben realized when he tweeted that today of like, oh, I was driving and saw this really interesting thing out my window. And I don't know how it got there. I wonder how it got there. And those kinds of questions are generally the ones that turn out to lead you down rabbit holes that get very interesting <laughs> exactly i don't i don't know who that quote is but science didn't begin with a bang it begins with a with a hmm that's funny <laughs> right yeah that's funny yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah that's exactly right um so julia turner said in her slate article that she went into her geology class like a raging environmentalist <laughs> it was pretty funny <laughs> she said she loved <laughs> the whales and was ready to <laughs> she recycled she spent a semester on a farm it says and she goes on to say, I wanted to keep humans from changing and destroying the planet, which is sort of what you think the goal of environmentalism is. 
but geology complicated my understanding of this desire. The planet has been changing for millennia. It's been destroyed and remade again and again. And so the environmentalist instinct to preserve the planet exactly began to seem not altruistic, but selfish. That was a really interesting thought. Yeah, I mean, the the planet has been through a lot. And some of the things that you walk over on a daily basis, not far under your feet, record horrible events that happened to the Earth before we were here. Uh, exactly. So it'll happen again. Yes, it's, and it's not this static thing that doesn't need to change. Um, I think this goes back to just talking about the preconceived beliefs, right? Um, I try to do this in my class because... I live in a, you know, super, super red state where people, everyone thinks they know about oil and stuff. And so everyone thinks that they're going to come to this geology class taught by this professor who's going to be anti-oil, which happens sometimes. But you have to understand, you know, the science behind it and take away any sort of political beliefs or these just personal beliefs about it and get to know the real processes of the earth. And I thought this was really neat. She didn't really know that. She thought the good thing would be, you know, we don't need to change anything, but you can't stop it because change is the process of the earth. So that was a really cool part of the article, I thought. Yeah, no, it was it was a good point. And I don't think that there's been a lot of people that take geology classes <laughs> that have thought, oh, wow, well, maybe being... We're not saying that you should be anti-environmentalist by any oh, oh, <laughs> any yeah. stretch of the imagination. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but maybe saying, oh, well, everything really does change. Exactly. Climate included. But that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother show. <laughs> uh, that's a whole nother series of shows that I don't know that we want to do right now. <laughs> so true. <laughs> well, what else do you think about geology is important? Well, so... You mentioned places earlier. Right. And I think being connected with places is a very important thing for us as humans. Traditionally, we've built uh, our cities and places where we can get water or we can get protection uh, thanks to the geography, which is controlled by the geology. So all these things, we end up depending on geology and knowing about places to survive. Exactly. Um I'm, I do this assignment in my native science class because so much native knowledge is in the land. And it's not just knowledge about, you know, geology or, you know, you can get fish from this part of the stream and not the other. It's the land as a whole and its interconnectedness. And I make my students describe their place. And, I, and what I say to them, you know, immediately, everybody has a place. Think of that one place you know, that's the place that you love. And then we investigate that place throughout the semester um, in terms of its meteorology, in terms of its geology, how it changes over years, within a year cycle, how it changes over, you know, the amount of time that that student's been observing that place. And nearly every student at the end was so excited about it because while they knew their place intimately, they didn't know a lot about the science of their place, like why geomorphologically, how did it form? Why is there a hill here? You know, why is it a valley here? And I felt like they got a deeper connection by just learning some fundamentals of the earth sciences. And so 
I think that's really cool. I think that's a really powerful, a really powerful thing. We get so disconnected and to think of it, you know, to think of your place in terms of actual science terms, I think it gives you a deeper understanding of it. Yeah, absolutely. And things make a lot more sense as to why things are where they were or why you have the industries you do or why you had the industries that you had. Uh, it's, it just makes a lot more sense. Right, exactly. I mean, for you up there now in Pennsylvania, right, you know, coal was king and now you guys have a, I mean, the first oil well in the U.S. was drilled in Pennsylvania, so. Yeah, the Drake Well Museum is just on the other side of the state. So, you know, there's a lot about your place that you can learn and it just, it makes it more special to you and it goes back to being a better steward of earth in general. Well, and I think this ties into one of the points that I had for the the last thing that we wanted to do. So I'll go ahead and bring it up now. We can roll it on over into Mm -hmm. that, which is the Carl Sagan pale blue dot monologue. Yeah. (laughs) Because there the place is earth in general. If you're not familiar with this story, uh, one of the, I believe it was one of the Voyager probes was going out, way out, and he got NASA to turn around uh, somewhere out in the vicinity of Saturn, I believe, and take a picture mm-hmm. of Earth. And it's just another dot in the photo. If you didn't know that that was Earth, you would think it's just something yep. else out in the sky. Or maybe even noise on the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. <laughs> and he says, that's here. And in this fantastic monologue, makes all kinds of points, uh, political and personal and science, that... Uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but it'll choke you up. Oh, absolutely. I can I can barely really even think about it um, because, yes, it's a huge – that's a place on the – just like you said, the place on the grander scale, and it's unbelievable to think about your insignificance in the larger scale. And she talks about that in her article too. You know, you can take a history class – and understand your insignificance in terms of human history, but to think about your insignificance in terms of the 4.6 billion years Earth has been here, or the 14 billion years the solar system has been. Yeah, it leaves you a little speechless, I think. Yeah, and it's a little uh, a little relieving <laughs> as well, because you realize that maybe not everything rides on you know, the the big meeting on Monday. <laughs> yeah. I can just wait one more day before I grade those quizzes and no one will die. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but you should definitely watch it. The, the version that I've linked in, somebody did some really nice editing of movie clips and things to go along with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's worth, worth thinking about, which leads us into you were talking about how long the Earth had been here in the solar system, uh, time. And that was the last one we wanted to hit Uh, today right i think it's the biggest deal in geology it's what sets geology apart from so many of the other sciences from virtually every other science really is the enormity of what it means to study geology right so i mean a lot of sciences you're dealing with things on years tens of years uh, in physics, seconds, Sorry, nanoseconds, yeah. mm-hmm. picoseconds, femtoseconds, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, very short amounts of time or relatively long amounts of time on the scale of a lifetime. Uh, 
but not a ton of sciences, maybe with the exception of biology, think about things on the thousands, hundreds of thousands, and millions of year timeline. Right. Um, I ask students sort of right away, like, how do we know how old Earth is? And before I go into, you know, the really actually quite rich history of science, having dealing with how we figured out how old Earth is. And so inevitably, somebody will say, well, carbon dating. Okay, well, while radioactivity is the answer as to how we know how old Earth is, I mean, carbon dating's a joke in terms of geology, right? I mean, what is the half-life? Like 14,000 oh, yeah. years, you know? And so I immediately sort of say that. I mean, nicely, obviously. <laughs> but, then, <laughs> but then when you think, you know, um, even a million years in geology, it's nearly negligible. Yeah, and I, I may have related this on the show before, maybe not, uh, but I remember being uh, doing some field work, and somebody stopped, as people do when they see you on the side of the road <laughs> with a bunch of equipment, and asked, you know, what we were doing. So, oh, we're doing geology field work. Oh, what are you looking at? Oh, looking at, you know, this recent volcanic field over here. And this person saying, recent volcanic? <laughs> Is there going to be a volcano? And I said, oh, well, you know, it was about 6,000 years ago was the last activity here. And they were so mad at me. <laughs> and it's like, well, th that's incredibly recent. <laughs> uh, that's what my mind just went to. I was like, yeah, that's virtually yesterday. <laughs> like, yeah. I think it takes you, what's interesting about geology is you can talk about the enormity of time over and over again. And I certainly do. I introduce the geological time scale right away. I do all those cheesy things where you talk about how long we've been here and how long geologic time is. And, you know, you can say that for a long time, but I will say it's taken me a bunch of years as a geologist to really sort of fully grasp it, I think. And so it's something that if you're introduced to it early on in your life in college, I think it's a, sort of a, a neat concept to ruminate on throughout your time on Earth, too. Just like you said, it makes you kind of relieved at the insignificance of things well, yeah and you realize that there are things like coastal features that will change during your lifetime right there are a few islands that might appear during your lifetime mm -hmm. uh, but that things like large mountain ranges aren't going to appear or disappear in your lifetime uh, but if you were able to play the movie forward for a few million years uh, it would look just as dynamic as sand dunes to uh, right exactly uh, one of my favorite science writers is John McPhee and is oh yes <laughs> yes <laughs> I know I've uh, <laughs> uh, made you listen to me rant about him over and over again but it, this quote and I always say it in my intro class because you know people think geology well they're rocks they're just sitting there whatever what do I need to know they don't ever move right and so he has a quote and he says you know the the rocks at the top of Mount Everest are limestone they form 10,000 feet below the surface of the ocean. So think about that the next time that you think geology isn't dynamic. The rocks at the top of the world form 10,000 feet below the ocean surface. Oh, that, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's actually a decent place to segue to Fun Paper Friday, believe it I or know. not. I <laughs> know. Because it's all about time scales and, you know, stuff floating in from the universe down on us, right? 
Yes, I mean, it, here we're talking about, you know, rocks from space. <laughs> uh, so close. <laughs> yeah, I tried. So this was based on, I actually saw this originally as an article on Gizmodo, which then linked to the EOS, which is the AGU uh, weekly, biweekly publication, mm-hmm. which finally led me back to the original article where this all came from <laughs> to start with. Uh so this original article is called Inferring the Global Cosmic Dust Influx to the Earth's Atmosphere from LiDAR Observations of the Vertical Flux of Mesospheric Sodium. Wow. <laughs> it has everything we love, though. You know, it's got radar. It's got atomic elements. It's got mesospheric eddies. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it is. This paper... Once again, pushes all the buttons. We seem to find those probably because yeah, we look yeah, for that's them. probably true. Uh, <laughs> and I have so many notes on this paper. I will say um, that I think might pertain to my own research. So I was really excited about it. Um, I'll let you explain a little bit more about it though first. Well, so the goal of this paper really was how much cosmic dust comes down. So cosmic dust, you know, we pass through uh, where comets have been and left particles, uh, meteor showers being the big thing that we look Mm -hmm. for, Uh, all kinds of little things floating around space that are just leftover stuff from 4.6 billion years ago. Right, exactly. When all the planets were forming. we haven't cleaned up all our trash, and so there's still a lot of it out there. Oh, yeah. And the interesting thing is nobody understands exactly how much of this cosmic dust lands on the Earth every day. But the estimates range from 0.4 to 110 tons per, per day. day of dust. <laughs> per day. <Yes. laughs> I had to make sure that T slash D meant tons per day because that's a lot of dust. Granted, when you think about, you know, on the scale of the Earth mass, 10 to the 24 kilograms, it's nothing. But, but <laughs> <laughs> when you think on the scale of dust in the atmosphere... <laughs> It feels like a lot. It's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, this dust, other than settling down and probably not being that consequential, you would think, it does a lot. As it goes through the atmosphere, it can be used as cloud condensation nuclei, (laughs) which is really important for cloud formation, reflecting energy back out into space, regulating temperature and climate. Uh, So the dust may have something to do with that. As well as Shannon just said, everything's connected earlier. Uh, it's also been shown to fertilize plankton growth and Antarctica. Exactly. Uh, so there we're not talking about just the sodium, but, you know, iron is part of this atmospheric dust too. And iron seeding in the oceans is a big deal. Um, you know, we talk about seeding the clouds, which is the same thing. It's putting up cloud condensation nuclei to create clouds and therefore sort of change that little microenvironment there. But iron floating down and feeding algae is a huge deal in terms of the fluxes, chemical fluxes in the oceans, which interact with the atmosphere and so on and so on. So this dust isn't just hanging out super high up and burns off. I mean, it has implications under the ocean floor too. And especially when you think that's why we need a better observation of how much it is because 0.4 to 110 that's a pretty big range (laughs) yeah and i loved the way that these things were estimated Uh, (laughs) 
One of my favorite techniques was by looking at the reduction in output of solar panels on satellites with time and estimating how much dust had accumulated on the panels. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) No, 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 leave that that there. We're not going to clean it yet. We're we're sciencing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that actually uh, is on the upper end of that's towards the top of the range, and it agrees pretty well with what we see in polar ice cores. Right. And so you would think, oh, well, problem solved, but maybe not, because we'll learn about how meteorology can play a role in that with this paper. Right. Uh, some other folks using uh, different chemical mechanisms have said, well, it's a lot lower than that. So uh, Gardner et al. decided to use a Doppler lidar and actually measure these things in the atmosphere. This is done at the Starfire Optical Range, which is out in the New Mexican desert. And then they used meteorological models, combined it with their data, and got a number that's right smack in the middle of about 60 tons Right, which was kind of nice. I thought that, you know, we have these two end members, so maybe this estimation by LIDAR, by actually looking at the fluxes, particularly of sodium, which is a pretty big molecule, which is, I'm guessing why you can easily see it with LIDAR. Um, And the estimations of where it transports in the atmosphere gave them what they feel is a really good 60 ton per day number. Yeah, and so the paper, I will say, the first part and the last part of the paper are very suitable for a general audience. (laughs) Uh, The middle part, unless you're very comfortable (laughs) with... (laughs) Some pretty nasty uh, dynamic modeling. Yeah. Mm. You'll probably want to, you know, skip a bit, brother, uh, as they yep. say in Monty Python. <laughs> the, Giz- the Gizmodo uh, article will tell you everything you need to know. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really fascinating work, and I'm glad that's in there because it's very important for reproducibility of the science. Right. Uh, right. But to get the point of the paper, you don't have to go through all the equations. It's just fine. Uh the interesting thing was, so as th- this stuff has a residence time in the atmosphere of about three days, mm-hmm. and over that time, it gets transported about 22 degrees of latitude, they estimate. I was impressed by that. Um, and, well, yeah, and the cool thing was, they said, well, it gets preferentially transported to the winter pole. Mm-hmm. So that lines up with you having higher estimates than probably what's real in polar ice cores. Exactly. Yep. I can't explain the satellite dust collection, though. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Well, you know, out there, gravity's different. You got a lot of different uh, interactions going on, so there could be something to do with that. Right. But this was a really neat application of dynamic meteorology, very remote sensing, yeah. looking at things in the mesosphere. Uh, space, meteors, and geology, because this is a definitely non-traditional deposition mechanism. Uh, Exactly. And sodium is important because, you know, geochemically, it's sort of one of our tracer elements when we talk about weathering rates. And so that's probably roughly about all I'm going to say, because I have some ideas for my own research (laughs) based on reading this paper. (laughs) Um, And because they're tracking, you know, the sort of exact... Um, the exact atmospheric movement of this sodium and where it goes. And so I don't know if you can sort of use that to trace differential weathering based on your latitude, but it seems like an interesting idea. 
Yeah. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> um, it's neat that you can use... Um, I mean, John and I both love radars. So it's really cool that you can use this LIDAR to trace an element that is stuck in a gravity wave in the mesosphere. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> so you should... You should check out this article and then go read about LIDAR. Uh, and that'll that'll get you through till next week's show just doing that, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's true. LIDAR has a lot of applications, so I can imagine we will talk about it more and more. But um, this is a pretty neat introduction and a really unique usage of the technology, for sure. Yeah, so I think that's about all I had on Fun Paper Friday. But I did want to add, we had kind of a, a late-breaking news item, and I don't even know if Shannon was aware of this. Uh -oh. <laughs> uh, right before we started recording, there was a magnitude 8.3 earthquake no. off the coast of Chile. Oh, no. Uh, so this is a rather, rather large earthquake. Uh, and the pager report right now is kind of in the orange range. Uh, but... There have been some really interesting, and if you you can go back and look on my Twitter or the show Twitter probably, and see uh, the tidal waves going across the ocean from this. Oh my gosh! The the tsunami forecast center was working up a forecast when we started recording. I haven't checked to see if they have a new one out, but I mean they were seeing some of the buoys uh, very near where the earthquake was reporting about six meter swells with a period of about fifteen minutes. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty big. And um, so this was, it looks like it was um, near Santiago again. Yeah, the fault patch for this one will be, uh, I'm interested to see what actually slipped. Mm -hmm. uh, the shaking intensity, Mercalli shaking intensity, uh, was also pretty high. They think that about 42,000 people felt uh, Mercalli 8, wow. which is severe that shaking. Is severe shaking. That's way up there. Goodness. Well, that'll be interesting to see what we find out from that then as the week goes on. Yeah. So keep up with that and we'll see what we can do uh, maybe about talking about this uh, like we did the Nepal earthquake mm -hmm. maybe. Yes. Yep. Exactly. All right. Well, so keep an eye out for that and send us any feedback you have, anything you'd like us to talk about, fun papers, uh, why you're interested in geoscience or what you'd like to know about geoscience and we'll be happy to ramble on it for <laughs> as long as as long as you'll let exactly. us uh, shannon how can they send us that information yes, i would love to hear from why you think geology is important or just cool and uh, you can send that to us show at don'tpanicgeocast.com uh, you can leave an audio comment explaining your love of geology on our website don'tpanicgeocast.com as always, we're on Twitter, at Don't Panic Geo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or findings.